a great opportunity for us as a congregation to worship God together and uh, through the songs we sing and by opening up his word together. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, we're going to um, be looking at um, a story, an incident recorded for us in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. If you want to give a title uh, to the message this morning, it would be, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who is this who speaks uh, blasphemies? You know, there are questions that we might hear from time to time that they're, that bring us face to face with what's called a conundrum. Uh, questions that there really is no answer to. Questions like, uh, if the number two pencil is the most popular pencil, then why is it still number two? Or if a man tries to fail and he succeeds in his attempt to fail, then what do you call that? Is that a success or failure? Uh, Or the age-old question, if a man is in the forest by himself and he says something out loud and there is no woman around who hears him, is he still wrong? These are tough questions that, uh, you know, it's hard to find an answer to and that bring us face to face with a conundrum. And in our passage this morning, we uh, are going to encounter some religious leaders who will witness Jesus close up, uh, bestowing forgiveness upon a paralyzed man And he'll say to this man, your sins are forgiven. And some religious leaders are going to ask the question, who is this? Uh, But they're going to ask the question couched in a set of stated assumptions that basically cut them off from being able to answer the question rightly. In fact, they're going to ask the question in a way that actually answers the question, And upon answering the question, it cuts them off from the right answer. Their question is, who is this who blasphemes? So they've just answered their own question and it prevents them. It walls them off and pre- prevents them from being able to arrive at the only right answer to this question. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in Matthew 16 where Jesus was in a conversation with his disciples and he asked them, who do people say that I am? Then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And we pondered that question and identified it as the single most important question that we could ever ask. Last week, we looked in Mark chapter four and we went with the disciples across the Sea of Galilee where they encountered a storm at sea and Jesus spoke and he calmed the storm And on the other side of the calming of that storm, the disciples were left staring at Jesus and asking, who is this whom the wind and the sea obeys? It was a beautiful moment for these disciples. Their question was an expression of amazement, an expression of um, hunger to know more 
about Jesus. It was an expression of humility, and it was a tremendous expression of wisdom. But in our passage today, uh, it's religious leaders that are asking this question, who is this, as they gaze at Jesus, and their question is different in its tone than the one we saw last week. The question this week is um, an expression of amazement. They are startled by what they have just seen Jesus do. Uh, But their question is also an expression of outrage. They are offended. They are horrified by what they have just seen Jesus do. And their question is, amongst other things, an expression of their offense at what Jesus has done But their question is also an expression of closed-mindedness. They're not asking the question, who is this, Lord, and whoever he is, uh, we will believe that. No, they say, who is this, and immediately answer it, basically, by saying he is one who blasphemes. And they may not realize it, but they have just walled themselves off from the ability to arrive at the only right answer regarding who Jesus is. Uh, There's a set of assumptions that are attached to their question. And the assumptions are basically this, that Jehovah God is the only one who forgives. Uh, Assumption two, Jesus is not Jehovah God. Assumption three, Jesus is acting like he is Jehovah God. And assumption four... Therefore, Jesus blasphemes. And on the other side of those assumptions, they're asking the question, who is this? Well, at that point, you're only left with two possible answers. If he is not Jehovah God, then he is either a fanatical lunatic who is deluded regarding the truth about himself, or he is the epitome of evil. And so we're not surprised in Uh, the Gospels to find that there were people arriving at these very two conclusions about Jesus, that he had lost his senses or that he was possessed of a demon, in fact, the Lord of demons himself. So what we want to do is look at this question in the context of it. And so the way we're going to break down our story this morning as we work through the passage is we'll observe seven developments surrounding the religious leaders asking this question of Jesus Who is this? Let's begin in verse 17. The first development that we observe is that these religious leaders traveled. They traveled some distance and they took front row seats in their attempt to observe Jesus. Says in verse 17, one day Jesus was teaching. Now, Luke does not tell us where this is, um, but Mark in his gospel tells us that this is in the city of Capernaum which is right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Mark also tells us that Jesus was at home. So they're in a house, and whosever house it is, it's a house that Jesus was at enough to where Jesus considered it home. Wouldn't that be great to where Jesus, man, he, he, when he came to your house, he just considered it home. This is likely Peter's house. Uh, in the city of Capernaum, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But whosoever house it was, Jesus was at home. And so Jesus is in this house in Capernaum, and he is teaching. 
And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. These were religious leaders in Israel. The Pharisees prided themselves in how fastidious they were in um, their separation, their obedience to the law. They tried to do whatever the law said, and then they would make additional laws that they would keep. And they prided themselves in their holiness compared to other people. And the teachers of the law, those that uh, were highly esteemed in Israel because of their understanding of the law of God, and they were very much in their attitudes, just like the Pharisees. And so Jesus is teaching, and in this house there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now, if you read in the other Gospels, like in Mark's Gospel, you will observe that there were a ton of people here, not just these religious leaders. In Mark 2, 2, it says, And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. So there's a ton of people here, not just the religious uh, leaders. Imagine so many people being in your home that it's standing room only and there are people all the way to the door and then out the door. That's how crowded this place is. And as crowded as it is with standing room only, uh, look at what Luke says, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. They had VIP seating. This is a standing room only crowd, and they had taken their seats close to Jesus. This tells us something of the honor that the people of Israel accorded to these religious leaders, and it also tells us something of the honor that they insisted on having. These religious leaders were not about to give up their seat for anybody else who was left standing They had their VIP seating and they're a few feet away from Jesus and they're sitting there smug and listening to Jesus and observing him as he is teaching in this very crowded venue. Look at what happens next. Uh, A second development that brings us closer to this momentous question that the religious leaders ask is some men with a paralyzed friend tried but could not get their friend to Jesus. It says in verse 18, And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of Jesus. Now, when we think of a paralyzed person, we tend to think of horizontal paralysis, someone who's paralyzed from the waist down or from the neck down. But and that would definitely be included in the possibilities here. But um, but there's other kinds of paralysis, someone who's paralyzed on the right side of their body or the left side of their body as the result of a stroke or something like that. And so any of those possibilities are here. We do know that this man was paralyzed to the point where he clearly could not walk and make his way to Jesus. He had to have friends who carried him. Luke just tells us that some men were carrying him. Mark tells us in his gospel that it was four men 
that were carrying him. And when they, no matter, I don't know where they would have come from, but they would have traveled a distance, this would have been a pretty tedious task of them carrying this man on a pallet. And they arrive at this house and they probably observe that it seems pretty crowded. There's people in the door and coming out of the door is everyone standing there straining to hear Jesus inside the house. And it says they were trying to bring him in. Their goal was twofold. Number one, to bring him into the house. And number two, to get far enough into the house to set this man before Jesus. That was their twofold goal. However, they could not do that. It says they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of Jesus. Their goal is to simply get their friend to Jesus so they could sit him down in front of him. Now, it's implied, I think, that they want Jesus to heal him. But their goal was we just want to get him to Jesus. We just want to be able to get him to where we can set him in front of Jesus so that he could hear the teaching that everyone else is hearing and Jesus could minister to our friend in whatever ways that he may may need. So they bring him to this house. They try to get him in. They try to get him in front of Jesus, but they don't succeed. So here's the third development. These friends tore through the roof in order to get their friend to Jesus. It says in verse 19, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Um, so they, they realize we can't get him in. No one's moving out of our way for us to be able to bring our friend and set him at the feet of Jesus. So they're not discouraged. They don't decide, well, let's just go back home. No, they, they say, let's go up on the roof. And they went up on the roof and they found the general area where they figured Jesus would be. And their goal was to let their friend down. Luke describes this uh, development uh, in a more delicate way, he says they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles. Uh, Mark, in his account, says they removed the roof above him and dug an opening. So they, they went up onto the roof. They figured out where Jesus was. And uh, Luke refers to tiles. And it's the Greek word ceremon, from which we get our English word ceramic. So there were clay tiles of some sort that composed the roofing of this abode. And they dug their fingers in and they removed those tiles and created an opening that was big enough to be able to let their friend through. That's that's a big opening. Um, so they create the opening and then once they create the opening, they they lower their friend down until he's on the ground in front of Jesus. Just imagine being in that moment and how distracting would that be for you? Imagine I'm preaching this morning and you guys hear some racket up ahead and and uh, you look up and it's somebody who's on the roof tearing a hole through the roof. I mean, how would you focus on on the message? And then the the opening gets bigger and bigger and then all of a sudden this guy gets lowered and he's set down here. I mean, that's that's what's happening here. Be very distracting. Probably was a great irritation to the religious leaders who were sitting there observing uh, this 
And so this is a crazy moment. And what's going to happen next? And what is Jesus going uh, to do? I really respect and appreciate the aggressiveness of these men. Um, They want to get their friend to Jesus and they will stop at nothing in order to succeed in that. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 in verse 12 when he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And that's what these men are doing. They're like, we're going to get our friend to Jesus. And if no one's going to move out of our way, then we'll go onto the roof. If we need to, we'll dig a hole through the roof and we're going to get our friend to Jesus. I love the spirit of of these friends. These friends obviously had great trust in Jesus and they obviously had tremendous love for their friend to go through those lengths, to get their friend to Jesus. So the friend is now lying in front of Jesus in this crowded place. What will happen next? There's a fourth development that we see that moves us closer to this question that the religious leaders are going to ask, and that is Jesus forgives the paralyzed man of his sins. It says in Luke 5.20, seeing their faith. And basically every commentator will tell you that their faith refers to the faith of the four men and the paralyzed man. The faith of all five of them. They are united in their belief in Jesus. Their trust in Him. And Jesus looks at these friends. He sees them looking down at him and they're looking at their friend. Jesus sees the faith that is in their hearts. And Jesus looks at this paralyzed man who's looking at him, uh, looking to Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith. And he spoke to the paralyzed man and said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Luke emphasizes here that Jesus saw their faith. And as I just mentioned, clearly that was the faith of the four men. And it clearly was the faith of the paralyzed man. But what was the nature of the faith of the paralyzed man? Um, I would suggest that the faith that this paralyzed man had was a faith that was looking to Jesus and believing in Jesus, not just for a healing but for forgiveness of his sins. Um, This man was paralyzed. Everyone would have seen him and identified him as such. That's how Luke introduces him to us. But this man would not be going around saying, yeah, you know, my name is so-and-so and and I'm a paralyzed man. No, he, he would say, that's not my identity. My identity is that I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And so he is here lying in front of Jesus and he's looking to Jesus and he believes in Jesus to be the one who can give him this forgiveness of sins. And I firmly believe that this man's faith went there. I don't think that man was lying there hoping for healing. And Jesus says, hey, um, your sins are forgiven. And the guy's like, well, great, but I came here for a healing. Jesus would not have pronounced this man's sins forgiven if this man's faith didn't go there. 
If he didn't see that he needed that and that that was his problem and that Jesus could actually rectify that problem and grant him uh, forgiveness. This is even implied in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says to him, cheer up, my son, your sins are forgiven. That expression, cheer up, could be translated, take courage. It's, um, It's what you say to someone who is seized with dread, a feeling of dread. Um, it's what Jesus said to his disciples when they saw him walking on the water and they thought he was a ghost and they thought they were a goner. And Jesus said, cheer up. They were filled with fear and dread. And Jesus said, take courage. And so implied even in him saying to this man, cheer up, take courage, um, is the fact that this man His heart was not only full of faith in Jesus and hope in Jesus, but also in this man's heart was a feeling of of dread as well. I've got a sin problem and I need forgiveness from my sins. And he's looking to Jesus with the pain of repentance, knowing that he is before the one who, who can decide either way what his fate will be. And Jesus looks at this man with a broken body and a broken heart, and he says, cheer up, my son. Cheer up, friend. Your sins are dismissed. I send away your sins from between you and me, and I send you away I release you from the prison cell of the judgment and the justice and the wrath that you deserve for your sins. I wipe the record books of heaven clean of all the sins that you have committed. And I announce to you that your sins, all of them throughout the entirety of your life, are dismissed. What a wonderful Savior we have. And how this paralyzed man must have drank in those words of forgiveness from Jesus. Now, what Jesus does here is surprising. It's a stunning development uh, on two counts. Uh, First of all, it's surprising because Jesus seems to bypass the man's most visible problem, right? I mean... Even though this man was wanting forgiveness from Jesus, and I don't think this man was surprised that Jesus dealt with his sin problem first, um, everyone else in the room is looking at this guy going, there's a paralyzed man. They're not thinking there's a sinner who needs forgiveness. They're thinking there's a man suffering from paralysis and he can't walk and he's lying before Jesus and Jesus is staring at him and Jesus is about to say something and knowing Jesus, he is about to heal this man. But Jesus says, cheer up, my friend, your sins are forgiven. This is a surprising Development that Jesus would bypass the man's physical problem and address his spiritual problem. But that's what Jesus does. And that's what he does with all of us. Um, Jesus would say to us, your number one problem is not that you're suffering. Your number one problem is that you're a sinner. And it's easy for us sometimes to wrap our identity in the suffering that we endure or this person did this against me or here's my circumstances. And and that becomes our identity. 
Uh, but Jesus would say, if you came to him with that, he would say, I will help you. But your primary identity is not that you are suffering. That's not your primary problem. Your primary problem is that you have a sin problem. And I can help you with that. I can address that. You can experience forgiveness and deliverance from me. We may come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your help uh, with this circumstance. Be my savior. And he will say, I, I'll get to that. But first, I want to address your sin problem. You come to Jesus with your broken and messed up marriage and you're like, Jesus, you got to save my marriage. Be my savior. And what we really mean is Jesus change my spouse. That's my biggest problem here. And Jesus says, you know, I may get to that, but I first want to deal with the biggest problem here. And that is your sin problem. That's what the Jews did to Jesus. Uh, they were hoping that he might be their Messiah to deliver them from those evil Romans. And Jesus messages, I will get to that. But I came to deliver you from your sins. I came to save you from you. And so he bypasses the man's obvious, most visible physical problem and goes straight to the heart of this man's real problem. And that is his sin problem. And with a word, Jesus pronounces this man's sins as dismissed. And in the process, he's doing a second really stunning thing. That's the even more amazing thing. And that is he's acting like he's God or something in doing this. He doesn't say to the man, friend, you know, by the authority of Jehovah, I was just praying to God the Father and he wanted me to tell you this. Uh, your sins in the name of Jehovah are forgiven. No, Jesus just speaks it. Just waves his hand probably and says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Cheer up. And he speaks with this authority as if he's Jehovah God. This is a stunning development that is profoundly offensive to these religious leaders. You say, well, how is it that this is Jesus acting like uh, he's he's God? Let me let me illustrate it this way. I'm going to pick on some people. Um, Moses, Tay, uh, could you stand for a second and just remain standing? This is Moses, Tay. Um, Brian Gill, could you stand? No? Okay. Um, this is Brian Gill. Moses Tay and Brian Gill. Let's just imagine that during the course of the sermon this morning that Moses uh, and Brian are just glaring at each other. There's something clearly going on between the two of them. They're mad, especially Moses is angry at Brian. And uh, and then in the middle of the sermon, Moses finally just gets up and he just walks over to Brian and hauls off and punches him in the face and then says some really mean things to him. And then he turns in a huff and comes back to his seat. Uh, imagine that that happened and then imagine that I observe that happening and I walk over to Moses and say, Moses, I, I saw what you just did to Brian and I want you to know that your sin of punching him in the face and saying awful things to him, your sins are forgiven. And I say to him, I forgive you of what you just did. Would that seem weird to you guys? 
Yeah, why? Because his sins are not against me, right? His sins are against Brian. In fact, if Brian heard me saying to Moses, I forgive you of your sin, he'd say, stay out of this. He didn't sin against you. He sinned against me. And I'm the one who's got the choice of whether or not to forgive him, right? That would only make sense, right? All right, you guys can be seated. Thanks. (laughs) So for Jesus to look at this paralyzed man and to basically say, I forgive you, do you know what he's saying by that? Implied in that bold gesture, in that announcement, Jesus is saying this. Every sin that you have ever committed throughout the entirety of your life has been against me. Every lie you've ever told, any time you've ever stolen, any time you have ever lusted, any time you have put any other God before me, any time you have ever been proud of your own righteousness and looked down on other people, any time throughout your life that you have ever committed a sin, That sin has been against me. I am your creator. I am the lawgiver. Your sins have been against me. And therefore, I have the authority right now to look at you and observe your faith and your repentance and say to you, your sins, all of them are dismissed. What a Lord is this? What Lord are you following? Uh, Jesus is the only Lord who will never let you down and who will grant you forgiveness when you let him down. There is no other Lord that anyone can ever have, whether it's your career or some person, some relationship or whatever it may be. Money that you let your life revolve around. Jesus is the only Lord who will never let you down and who is ready to forgive you whenever you let him down and sin against him. But in doing what he has done here with this paralyzed man, Jesus is behaving as if he is Jehovah God. This is the boldest thing that Jesus has done up to this point of his of his ministry. And that leads to a fifth development. And that is that the religious leaders respond by asking, who is this who speaks blasphemies says the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins, but God alone? I mentioned these real quick at the beginning of the message, but I'll put them on the screen here that notice again, the assumptions that are embodied in or attached to this question Their assumptions are only God can forgive sins. Jesus is not God. Jesus is acting like he is God. Therefore, he blasphemes God. And on the other side of those firm assumptions, they're asking the question, who is this one who blasphemes in this way? Now, to these religious leaders' credit, They understand something. They get it. They understand something that people in our culture today often fail to understand. Uh, They understand that you cannot just conclude that, well, Jesus was not God. He was not the son of God, but he was a good man. 
he was a great teacher. They would say, no, you can't you can't come to that conclusion about him. He either was Jehovah God or he's a blasphemer. And that blasphemy infects everything about him and all of his teaching and who he is in his person. It's not an entertainable option that Jesus was not the God that he acted like he was. And yet he was a great noble man or a good or great teacher. Thomas Jefferson um, denied the deity of Christ. He denied that Jesus was the son of God. But he did say that Jesus' teaching is among the most sublime and benevolent that has ever been offered to the world. Ernest Renon, the French atheist, denied the existence of God, denied that Jesus was God, denied that he was the son of God. And yet he said Jesus is uh, the noblest among the sons of men. Yeah, he wasn't God, but... He wasn't the son of God, but he was among the very noblest of men who have ever lived in the history of the world. If these religious leaders heard someone saying that, they'd go, you can't do that. You can't do that because Jesus acted like he was God and he did things that only God had the right to do. He claimed to be God and either he was God or he was an outright blasphemer. C.S. Lewis, in his classic uh, passage on this subject, presents this trilemma um, where he lets us know here are the only legitimate choices that we can arrive at regarding Jesus. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And that is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we're left with those choices. These religious leaders are left with this choice. He's basically saying he's God. Um, And he either is or he's one of the worst human beings that has ever lived. Does that make sense? I know there are people who have tried to deconstruct C.S. Lewis's trilemma and bring it into question. But uh, for whatever it's worth, Christopher Hitchens the uh, late anti-theist who hardly ever gets quoted from this pulpit for good reason. Um, Christopher Hitchens actually says that C.S. Lewis is dead on right in what he says. 
Uh, and Hitchens would say things like what Thomas Jefferson said and Ernest Renan and others who say Jesus was not God, but a great moral teacher. Hitchens would say himself, you're not allowed to do that. And he would not let you do that when he was alive. And he even says this, listen to this, as a strong non-admirer of Lewis, I am bound to say that Lewis is more honest here, more honest than Jefferson and others who would say Christ was a great man, but not God. Such a person, if not divine, would be a sorcerer and a fanatic. And Hitchens would say, I agree with the logic of C.S. Lewis. My problem is that C.S. Lewis concludes he's God. Hitchens would say, I deny that he's God, and I therefore conclude that Jesus was a fanatical, lunatic, uh, and one of the most evil people that's ever lived and who brought into existence a religion that is one of the worst things to happen to the human species in the history of the world. But he at least respects the dilemma that these religious leaders are confronted with. You must believe that Jesus is either Jehovah God or you need to conclude he was a deluded man, a lunatic. He had lost his senses and maybe accidentally thought that he was God in his craziness or he is among the most evil, arrogant people that have ever lived in human history. And so these religious leaders 2,000 years ago are just a few feet away from Jesus and they're confronted with this. And they conclude he's a blasphemer. And they're left now with the only possible conclusions he's either a madman or he's really, really evil. And that's why some among the religious leaders right around this time period in Jesus' public ministry came to the conclusion that he was demon-possessed and not just demon-possessed, but possessed by the Lord of demons, by the most powerful of demons, and that his ministry and his miracles was inspired by the power of Satan. Well, Jesus sees what they're thinking, and they're not even asking this question out loud. They're just thinking the thought. So be careful what you think about in the presence of Jesus because he can read your mind. And so Jesus responds to this inward question going on in their hearts. He answers their question by healing the paralyzed man. Verse 22, but Jesus aware of their reasonings. That word is the word we get our word dialogue from. There's an inward dialogue going on inside the hearts of these men. They're asking themselves a question and pondering the answer. Jesus aware of their reasonings answered and said to them, why are you reasoning or dialoguing inside your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you or to say, get up and walk. Now, that's a great question. Think about that for a moment. Which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say, get up and walk of those two things? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Which of those two things is the easier of the two to address the physical problem or the spiritual? What's easier? To address the physical, right? In fact, I'll tell you how hard it is to address the spiritual problem of this man's sins. Jesus had to get crucified. He ultimately will die for the sins of this man to be able to forgive this man of his sins. 
So in reality, the harder thing is to address this man's spiritual problem, his sin problem. But in the minds of the religious leaders, what would their answer have been? Their answer would have been, well, it's so much easier to just say your sins are forgiven than it is to say, get up and walk. Uh, Because this paralyzed man did not come in with this visible 200-pound burden on his back that everyone could see, and then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and everyone watches that burden disappear. No, that's an invisible thing. Jesus can say your sins are forgiven, but nothing happened that was visible. The results were not visibly observable or measurable. So, of course, anyone can just say that your sins are forgiven and then pretend something significant happened. So in the mind of the religious leaders, the harder thing to do was in front of a crowd of people just a few feet away to look at a paralyzed man and say, get up and walk. And so Jesus accepts their thinking and works with that. And so look at what he says. But so that you all would think that the harder thing is to physically heal this man. And so I'll work with that so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Three commands. Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Verse 25, And immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. It's interesting, Jesus did not tell him to do that. He just said, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. The man got up, picked up his bed, And went home and chose to do so glorifying God. He didn't need to be told to do that. He is so excited. My sins have been forgiven. And this same Savior who has given me forgiveness has healed my body. And so he's excited and he's praising the Lord and giving the glory to God for this great work. This is the best day in this man's life. If Jesus had left him paralyzed, this man still would have spent the rest of his life talking about the best day he ever knew when he was brought to the feet of Jesus and Jesus forgave him of his sins. That would have been his testimony for the rest of his life and through all of eternity. But Jesus has now gone even beyond that and has healed his body. And the religious leaders and others just a few feet away, they watch this. Jesus is talking to a man clearly paralyzed and he says, get up. Don't just do that. Pick up your bed and go home. And the man is able to obey those instructions from Jesus. By the way, what commands does Jesus give to you? You realize implied in all of his commands is the promise to carry them out. This man could have said, "Uh, Jesus, you just told me to get up and pick up my bed and go home. I, I don't know if you noticed, I'm paralyzed. I can't do that. No, this man clearly understood that if Jesus is telling me to do this, then I can do this by the grace of God. Amen. He didn't even need Jesus to say, get up, take up your bed and go home and let me give you an assurance that you're being healed right now and that you will be able to do what I just told you to do. He didn't even need to tell him that. All this man needed is just give me the word. You tell me to get up, that means I can get up. Even though my history says I'm a paralyzed man and the facts say 
My physiology says I'm paralyzed. If you tell me to get up, then that means I'm no longer paralyzed. So guys, whenever you're reading in the scripture and you see a command from the Lord Jesus, know that inside of that command is the promise that you can do what it is that he's telling you to do. We should get excited when we look at the commands in scripture Because whenever we see those commands, our thoughts should be, oh my goodness, I can do this. I can do this. Every command is just an announcement of what we can now do in Christ. Well, how do the people respond? There's honestly nothing said in this account about how the religious leaders themselves respond. But the crowd of people, the common people that were there, look how they respond. They responded to Jesus' answer with astonishment, praise, fear, and open-mindedness. It says in verse 26, and they were all struck with astonishment. You know what the Greek word is underneath the word astonishment? Ecstasy, from which we get our word ecstasy. Very good. Um, And what this literally means is to be out of one's normal state of mind. In fact, in Acts 10, Peter's on a rooftop and he fell into a... Trance. The Greek is he fell into a state of ecstasy. He was out of his normal state of mind. Um, and even later in the book of Acts, Paul falls into a trance. And the same word ecstasy is used. So you know how sometimes you witness something so amazing that you even say, this is surreal. You're like, I got to pinch myself. Did this really happen? Am I really awake or am I dreaming this? That's kind of what's happening to these people. They are literally entranced by what they have seen. They're astonished and they began glorifying God. These, these people here probably would have been terrible theologians. They could not have sat down and explained what we now know with the benefit of Scripture and all that happened after this and the fuller revelation of Jesus Christ and all that He is and all that He did. Uh, they probably would have been, done a terrible job of explaining all that and connecting all the dots, but they would have said, God is here He did something really amazing. He gets all the glory and he did it through Jesus. We know that much and we're going to praise God for what just happened here. This man who is forgiven and this man who is healed. God has done this. God is at work. And it also says they were filled with fear. Why would that be? Why would that be? You know why? Because they realize... God is in the house. This one who just pronounced this man's sins forgiven, this man is really blessed. He's walking out of here with his sins forgiven. I am right now in the presence of the one who chooses to forgive or not forgive. There's enormous spiritual power and divinity that is in this house right now. I'm in the presence of divinity and spiritual power, the likes of which I have never seen before Am I on the good side of this power or not? And what about my sins? One writer says this fear was the reaction of their hearts due to the consciousness of sin and was aroused by the realization that Jesus appeared as God remitting sins. Everyone's now thinking about their own sins and their connection to Jesus. And what is Jesus verdict on me and my sins? They also said, we have seen remarkable things 
today. One more Greek word. The Greek word underneath remarkable is the Greek word paradox, from which we get paradox. Very good. You're getting better. Um, We've seen paradoxical things today. Things that contradict received wisdom. Things that bust our paradigms, that go way beyond anything we've thought or believed before and that kind of leave our former paradigms in shatters. He's destroyed former notions of received wisdom. But they're saying we've seen it. We have seen it. These individuals are left entranced. They're glorifying God. They're filled with fear and awe. And they are embracing what they have seen. Their minds and their hearts are wide open to Jesus. Even though nothing is said in this account of the response of the religious leaders, we know what their response ended up being. Um, This is the first time that you see the word blasphemy show up. And immediately that puts a dark cloud over Christ that will only grow bigger all the way to his trial. You know, when he stands trial before the Sanhedrin, you know the charge that brought the sentence of death upon him? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. And it started here. Which shows the love of Jesus in a remarkable way. Jesus could have looked at this paralyzed man and said, you know what, I'm just going to heal him. His sin problem, I'll deal with that privately because I don't want to be provocative to these religious leaders. But Jesus says, no, this man's believing in me right now for forgiveness and I'm going to grant him forgiveness. I don't care who sees or how provocative this may be to the religious leaders. And Jesus knows standing there. If I do what I'm about to do here, this will set in motion a chain of events that will lead ultimately to my crucifixion. And I accept that. I accept that. This will ultimately mean the death of me. And I'm going to forgive him anyway. That's the love of Jesus for this man. It's the love of Jesus for sinners. If you're here today and... Your life has been full of sin and brokenness. As Mike said earlier, we've got really good news for you. There is one in heaven who has authority to deal with your sin problem and to grant forgiveness, and that's Jesus. And he would be delighted if you would run to him and look to him and cry out to him for forgiveness and salvation. He would be delighted to grant you forgiveness. He's the Lord of the universe. He's at the right hand of God. He can do whatever he pleases. No one can stop him and say, what are you doing? And from that position of absolute lordship and authority, Jesus is giving out righteousness and grace and forgiveness and relationship and power to all those who look to him and say, you are the Lord and Savior for me. You have never believed in him, called upon him, do that today. Just in closing, if you're a believer here, um, keep looking to Jesus and asking, who is this? It's been so powerful the last few weeks that in a moment of temptation or anxiety or anger for me to just stop and just say, who is this? 
Who is this? To look at Jesus and ponder Him and then to reason from who He is to whatever it is that I may be facing. There's power in beholding Jesus and asking this most important question. Also, not only should we be running to Jesus, but we need to be bringing others to Him as well. These four friends were not bringing a non-believer to Jesus, even though we can apply that here. They were bringing a believing person to Jesus who was trusting in Jesus for forgiveness and for healing. And they stopped at nothing to get their friend to Jesus. What lengths will you and I go to to bring the lost to Jesus? What lengths will we go to to bring one another to Jesus? Someone comes to you even in the church. They're full of anger, full of bitterness, full of anxiety, full of sin and bondage. And your thought ought to be, my job here is to get this brother or sister to Jesus as quickly as I can. And you may even decide, I'm kind of realizing I can't do this by myself. So I'm going to bring some other friends in. It may take four of us, but we're going to bring this brother or sister to Jesus. Let's live our lives at Jesus' feet and bringing others to Him as well, okay? Let's pray together. Lord, You are a good and a merciful Savior. We love You. We trust You. We're amazed at You. What a Savior You are. This room is full of stories, Lord, just like what we've just looked at. Amazing stories could be told, represented by people in this room when they came to You in their brokenness and in their mess, and they just simply looked to You. They may have been paralyzed and not even able to do anything other than look. And You saved them. And you forgave them. And You're making them whole. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who has not begun this journey of being made whole, that You would grace them with the ability to look to You, Jesus, and experience the forgiveness and the salvation that can only come from You. And help us who are Your people to always look to You and to do all that we can at every opportunity to bring others with us to Your feet, Lord Jesus. We thank You, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to You, receive these funds, and do much with them for the glory of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.